they say, I'm interested, but I don't have time to find treatment, that's an opening for the parent. But if they say, it's none of your business, mom, then, you know, to say, well, you are my business. I love you. I care about you. I'm happy to be there for you no matter what you need. Welcome to the Bite Your Tongue podcast. I'm Denise, and I'm joined by my good friend, Dr. Ellen Broughton. We've been through many years of parenting together, and now we're ready to talk about the ins and outs of parenting adult children. Your diapering days are over. Now it's time to consider when to bite your tongue. So let's get started. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Bite Your Tongue. Today, we're talking about mental health. You know, when I first started this podcast, a young listener wrote to me, and she said that she thought her parents' generation, that's most of my listeners, really don't understand mental health. I was puzzled by this because I feel like it's been front and center in the news for many years, and we all have a pretty good handle on it. Yet, when I began to explore the topic, I found out there was so much I didn't know. I'm sure that each of us have our own mental health issues, but when mental health disease touches your adult child, it can be extremely painful, and I think many parents don't have a clue where to turn. Today, Ellen and I are welcoming Dr. Elizabeth Cookson, a psychiatrist who has over 35 years of experience. A former president of the Colorado Psychiatric Society, she is board certified in general and addiction psychiatry. She's dealt with children and adults of all ages in public psychiatric settings. What's even better is that Beth, as she likes to be called, doesn't have a book, podcast, or website to promote. She's here so we can all have a better understanding of mental health for both ourselves and our adult children. For over 15 years, she's worked as the Director of Psychiatry for the Coalition for the Homeless in Colorado. We are hoping that this episode will help all of us understand, support, and accept this disease. Each of us has a friend or family who has dealt with a child with mental health disease. Ellen, you've been in psychology your entire life, and I think you know that mental health disease can sometimes bring the entire family down. Yes, definitely, Denise. And you know, as a child psychologist, I see kids until they become adults. And I know because I get a lot of calls from parents of young adults that that young adulthood, that emerging adulthood time or even on into their 30s is a time that really can be quite anxiety provoking because it's a time when mental health issues can pop up sometimes very suddenly or sometimes it's something a family has been dealing with for a really long time. And they think that by the time their child reaches adulthood, it will be gone. And it's disappointing to find out that that's not the case. But let's start at the beginning. And Beth, um, I'd love for you to talk to us about the fact that mental health disease is, is a growing problem right now. Or why is it a bigger issue than it ever was? Or does it just feel that way to us? So there are a couple of uh, things to unpack One is that uh, mental health disorders have been stigmatized and have been, you know, not talked about for centuries. And I think there is more uh, discussion about it now. 
Um, I also think that with uh, COVID and the pandemic, that there are a lot of people who are having mental health symptoms and are in a great deal of distress, but may or may not actually have symptoms that rise to the uh, level of a disorder. Also, it's hard to get good data about uh, prevalence in the last couple of years. You'll read one study that says there's more depression, another study that says, oh, the amount of depression and anxiety has decreased. But this has been a problem for a long, long time. And it's a problem globally as well as in the U.S. What do you think has changed since, you know, over the last 20 years or 30 years? Why do you think, other than we're decreasing the stigma, like you said, but it seems to be a bigger problem for families? What do you think it is about families that are having trouble with this? Well, one of the things that helps decrease the incidence of mental health disorders is a sense of connectedness. You know, these disorders are like a lot of chronic medical conditions in that multiple uh, factors contribute to them having symptoms. You know, if you think about asthma, you know, yes, it has a familial part to it. Yes, it has a part to it that we don't understand, but there's also a huge environmental part in terms of symptoms. You know, if you're allergic to cats and you have a cat in the house, if you are in substandard housing and the mold is causing you to have reactive airway problems. Psychiatric disorders are the same way. There's some genetic components. Um, there's some family dynamic components. And there's certainly significant environmental components. And having people be less connected is definitely a contributor. The other thing that some studies suggest as well is that it's perhaps more likely for a depressed person to pair with another depressed person. So there may be some dynamics going on that may actually increase the prevalence of some mental health disorders. When you say disconnect um, or lack of connection, are you implying I guess the COVID pandemic, when people were socially distancing or just quarantining, but also social media, the way the world is right now with all of that, does that contribute to it? What I'm talking about is if we look at the U.S. over the last 50, 70 years, extended families are less oh, um, mm -hmm. involvement in uh, group activities is less. Also, social disconnectedness during COVID is an issue. Social media is certainly an issue, uh, especially among young people in terms of increasing experiences of decreased self-worth, increased sort of fear of missing out and anxiety around that. There was just a recent article about, uh, you know, Facebook having an internal study showing that uh, Instagram increased symptoms of depression and anxiety among teens. And again, it's a little hard because we all experience some depressive symptoms now and again. We all experience some anxiety symptoms now and again. You can be very uncomfortable from those symptoms and still not have a diagnosable disorder. So those distinctions right, are right. also difficult. 
So Ellen said in the beginning, and this was something I really wanted to ask you, how many times kids make it through adolescence and then they get to the period of emerging adulthood. And sometimes it's the point where they're leaving their family environment. And that's when mental health can appear. And I've read that certain ages for boys, particularly in their early 20s, that they can arise just out of the blue. What do parents need to be aware of and what kinds of things, signs should they be looking for? Sure. So the vast majority of mental health disorders appear by the age of 25 or 26. Um, The specific thing you're talking about with boys is uh, data around schizophrenia and how schizophrenia is seen earlier generally in males than in females. So, you know, the peak age of onset in boys or young men is, you know, maybe 20 to 25. And the peak onset for women is, you know, maybe 28 to 32, 35, something like that. And there generally are prodromal symptoms, but they may be really hard to distinguish. I mean, oftentimes, People who are developing schizophrenia may start to have uh, hallucinations or paranoia or a sense of grandiosity. Their family and friends may not know what's going through their minds. Uh, Oftentimes, though, you will see a change in personality, folks becoming more isolated, uh, less talkative, less interested in their usual activities. And again, I think Schizophrenia is one of those disorders that people are most fearful about. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, it's a pretty difficult thing to think of your child as suffering with a mental health issue. And I've known situations where the kid's been in college or away from home, typically a young man. And I think it is schizophrenia. Beth, you're right. Um, And it's taken a long time for the parent to even recognize that this is going on. Uh, Should parents, you know, you mentioned to me one time that heredity plays a big part. Are there other things that parents should be aware of? And should they talk about their kids maybe prior to them leaving home, things to look for or be aware of? Sure. To start with heredity, the estimate is that in the population at large, the chances of someone having schizophrenia are about 1%, 1 in 100. But if uh, one of your biological parents has the condition, it's six in a hundred. If your brother or sister has the condition, it's nine in a hundred. If both of your biological parents have the condition, it's 45 in a hundred. Oh my gosh. So one of the things that hopefully this increased recognition will lead to is that people talk about their mental health histories with their children, just like they would talk about, does diabetes run in the family? Um, Does heart disease run in the family? And You may not always know the name of the disorder, but your grandfather spent five years in the state hospital or, you know, your great grandfather killed himself. Uh, Historically, those have been difficult things to talk about, but Mm -hmm. I think it can really help. The other things in terms of recognition and prevention are that things uh, young adults do when they go away to college are often not the best things to do to promote mental health. Uh, sleeping is often disturbed. Uh, eating is often disturbed. You know, other sort of regular routines like exercise and um, having a tight friendship network. Lastly, 
you know, substances can certainly make psychiatric disorders more visible and more symptomatic. And in in fact, there's really good evidence that uh, THC use increases psychotic symptoms among heavy users. You unpacked a lot right there. And I think there's so much to talk about. One thing is I, I do find that parents are not forthcoming about their family's mental health histories because there is, even when there is greater acceptance of everyone else's mental health, there oftentimes isn't greater acceptance of our own. So I think that people need to hear that, that it's something like you said, diabetes, colon cancer. We just need to be talking about this and also realizing that mental, a lot of these mental health issues like schizophrenia are, are pretty well treated. And I think we're scared of it because we're scared that there's nothing we can do or we're helpless like our grandparent might have been, but that's not the, the case anymore. But you bring up the issue of alcohol, drug use, substance abuse, and I think this is one of the most difficult things for parents to negotiate in a child who is in mid-20s or above. How do you suggest they handle that? What's the, What are the steps that they can take when they... For instance, their child might have been found to have been drunk driving or, you know, some other situation that came to their attention that they can't ignore. What should they do then? I think first is to be humble, because if you have a 25-year-old, your chances of being able to influence his or her behavior directly are probably slim. But to... uh, acknowledge it, to say it out loud, to say, gee, this is worrisome. Um, Have you thought about getting any help? Is there any way I can help you? Following their lead, because if they say I'm interested, but I don't have time to find treatment, that's an opening for the parent. But if they say it's none of your business, mom, then you know, to say, well, you are my business. I love you. I care about you. I'm happy to be there for you no matter what you need. There's not, I don't think, a whole lot of ways get in the middle of it and solve it. Um, I think if your um, adult child is engaged in really dangerous behavior, depending on your jurisdiction, there are some ways that in Colorado, for instance, one can petition for uh, an emergency commitment. But again, the involuntary commitment is really the last straw. And getting people involved in any kind of engagement early on is uh, really important. There's also a uh, fairly new intervention, and it's called CRAFT. And it stands for Community Reinforcement and Family Training. And it's mostly for families that have, you know, the kind of day-to-day touch that younger kids or adolescents do. But I think it's also helpful for parents of older children to just sort of figure out what is it in the family that I can do, that I can support an environment that um, makes treatment more likely rather than less likely. And also the parent and family organizations like Al-Anon can be helpful, but you have to watch out for programs that 
are just abstinence-only programs uh, mm. because the real issue is how do you get people into some treatment? How do you get the person engaged in the treatment? Because the best predictor of treatment success is the duration of time in treatment. Again, defining success not necessarily as this person never smokes marijuana again or this person never drinks alcohol again because these are chronic disorders and it's very hard with the way we've talked about both depression and anxiety and substance use disorders to remember that they're chronic disorders. You know, we really have this expectation that, oh, you'll enter treatment, you'll get better, that'll be it. Especially for disorders that occur occur either in childhood or early in adulthood, you're probably looking at chronic conditions. This sounds almost hopeless to me, but I want to ask a quick question. But let's go back to what Ellen said, which is that acceptance of the disorder, getting into treatment, there are many more successful treatments than there used to be. But, well, I'm going to go to... I want to ask one quick question going back to the THC and uh, increased risk. When you say that, does the person have to have a predisposition for a mental illness or can someone have no predisposition for mental illness and an overuse of drugs or alcohol can lead to that? So we're specifically talking about THC and psychosis right now. Right. Okay. And the, it's not clear. The, okay. the data is just not good enough. But this is also an important point when you're thinking about getting treatment for a child or an adult who has a substance use disorder. Again, especially with early onset, you're also looking at a high degree of associated comorbid mental health issues. And so one of the difficulties historically getting treatment for substance use disorders is that that system of care has been so siloed that treating the substance has been totally different than treating the mental health or treating the physical health issues. And that kind of treatment is not very successful. That makes perfect sense. How about finances, though? The free or less expensive treatment programs aren't as good as some people who can spend fifty or sixty or seventy thousand dollars to go to some in-house treatment for, you know, three months. And as you said, the length of time seems to be um, parallel with success. So money plays a big role in what kind of help people can get. Well, money take plays a big role in what kind of help uh, people can get for any kind of health disorder. I mean, Other countries talk about rationing, but we definitely ration on the basis of finances. Um, There's actually no good evidence that those snazzy three-month residential treatments have better outcomes. Again, historically, we sort of think of substance use treatment as, oh, you go to a program. And again, there are a lot of good, helpful, programmatic uh, modalities that are very effective in the outpatient setting. The issue is they're few and far between. Right. The finance stuff is, again, partly because of silos, partly because of discrimination. There was a Mental Health Parity Act in 2008, but it's still not being uniformly followed. And there's been a lot of specific discrimination against 
um, some kinds of treatments and some kinds of substance use disorder treatments. So you're right. It's very difficult to figure it out. And, and finances can be really troublesome. On the other hand, if you're talking about severe and persistent mental illnesses, actually, they're just called severe mental illnesses. Now, persistent has been dropped. I have actually advised families to drop their children from private insurance because some of the most effective modalities are covered by Medicaid and aren't covered by private insurance, at least in Colorado. Interesting. So it's, it, again, it's, it's very complicated. Substance use disorder treatment, just um, residential treatment, some intensive outpatient programs just got covered by Colorado Medicaid in January of this year. So that kind of brings me to an impossible question then. Really, this is the hardest thing that parents have to do in any situation is how much do we let them be on their own versus how much are we there to be a safety net? And does it change if a child has a substance use problem or a mental health issue? And it's a hard question to answer, but I'm going to ask it anyway. I think it comes down to, are you helping? Are you hurting? And that's a very difficult thing to judge sometimes. The thoughts about it have changed as well. I mean, the old 12-step AA kind of thought was they have to hit bottom. And actually, that's not supported by the research. Keeping a relationship is probably the number one thing you want to do. But you have to balance that on, you know, is it safe? You know, people who allow their child who's not on medications, who's actively psychotic, to tear up their home, or people who allow their child to bring in lots of people who are dealing drugs in their home are not helping. And so on the other hand, the sort of tough love of, I'm not going to talk to you until you're clean, doesn't help either. One of the things I find found most helpful is a, an approach called LEAP that's uh, by a psychologist called uh, Javier Amador. He basically goes through steps about how do you talk to somebody who does not share the same belief about his or her illness as what you see. And and basically sort of keeping them engaged, keeping a dialogue, uh, having that be the primary thing, no matter whether they're living with you or living in a group home or staying in a shelter, you know, just making it clear that you're always their parents, no matter what. That's great advice. That's such good advice because friends and well-meaning People will tell parents, oh, you just need to let her go or, like you said, hit rock bottom. And parents then feel bad when they aren't doing that. So it's the relationship that's that's the most important thing is kind of what you're saying. Preserve sure. that. Yeah, his, his book is called uh, I'm Not Ill, I Don't Need Help. Beth, I will connect with you after this and get links to all of this from Craft, everything you've mentioned, The Leap, and and this recent book. Um, I want to ask something sort of less, I don't want to say less worrisome because it's not, but I think sometimes it's really hard to identify depression in your adult child. And I think sometimes they will cover it up for you because they don't want you to know that they're depressed. 
And then I've heard of situations where suddenly a suicide is committed. And I guess it's some of the same thing, stay engaged and that sort of thing. What are the signs to recognize depression in your young adult child that's living away or something? Or what can parents do with that when it's not, you know, they're not into drugs, they're not into alcohol, they're holding a steady job. And all of a sudden, you know, because we weren't paying attention or we didn't want to acknowledge it, something happens. I think your comment about paying attention is important. Mm -hmm. But, um, you know, a big thing is, does your child let you in? Do you have enough data to know that something has changed? If your child is not willing to share that with you, um, is your child connected with other adults in whom you can confide and who you can say, say to your brother, you know, you're her uncle. I think you have a really close relationship with her. Do you have any concerns? Would you mind reaching out? That's a really good idea. Or um, if you know the people who are close to your child, just to say, if there's ever anything that concerns you about my son, please let me know so I can help. Uh, he's, you know, he's pretty uh, close to me, but um, I'm in his corner and uh, contact me whenever. Gosh, Beth, I love the way you say that. And, you know, what's striking for me now with this conversation is many of our other conversations and podcasts and friends I've talked to said, you know, they're young adults. They've got to live their life. Let go. You know, let them be. Uh, live your own life. And yet our parenting never stops. And all of these issues, whether they're 25, 35, 45, can come into play. So there's a lovely book about parenting. Um that uh, came out fairly recently, um, Gardener and the Carpenter by Alison Gopnik. The Gardener and the Carpenter. And she uses a, an analogy that has been used for a while in terms of styles of parenting or styles of education. And the carpenter is the parent who says, it's my job to make my child into a good citizen, a productive member of society, a doctor, a lawyer, an engineer, whatever. And the gardener thinks of his or her role as, I am going to water my plant. I am going to make sure my plant gets the right amount of sunshine. I'm going to make sure I provide fertilizer. I'll come out in the spring and I'll trim the dead branches and I will do everything I can do to help nurture this plant. And I think especially as our children become adults, that gardener analogy is so much more productive. So um, we don't want to be messing in our kids' lives. We don't want to be telling them what to do, but acknowledging you are always my son. You are always my daughter. I love you dearly. If there's anything I can do, let's talk about it and see what happens. Mm, that's beautiful. Really, yeah. really beautiful. Yeah. Um, easier said than done, of course. No, no. Everything's easier said than done, Beth. That's why we're talking about it. You know, you think about them all the time. You're hoping they're making the right choices, but you're right. You're the gardener. All you can do is be there as a support and let them know that you'll water them whenever it's needed. It's so tempting to give advice. Mm -hmm. You know, I mean, 
oh, have you tried this? Did you think of that? that? I bet this would work. I bet that would work. And, you know, with older children, that's not very helpful. Do you think it's helpful for parents to to tell their story? You know, you're right, because advice is it, it's really not something almost any of us really want. We just want to be able to, really. Unless we ask for it. Exactly. And and I, I don't know, I just wondered what your thoughts are about giving advice through telling your own story or your own battles with depression. Or I, I feel like parents are not that open to doing that for good reasons. But um, but I... I I don't know. What, what what do you think about that? Do you think it's helpful? Well, what Amador talks about is saying, would you be interested in hearing me talk about such and such? And again, keeping the control in uh, the child's corner and saying, you know, I have a story to tell about that. Would you like to hear it? Um, but yes, I think that to the extent we can make that conversation possible to the extent that we can say, you know, I'm willing to engage in this. I think that that has a huge potential to be helpful. You know, like if you're in a family where there's a history of depression, for instance, and the family has been open about this, and maybe when you've got a 26-year-old kid who's having some struggle, she will come to you and say, hey, dad, hey, mom, I know you've struggled with depression. What did it feel like for you? That can be the opening of a whole kind of conversation if the groundwork has been laid. Very true. You know, when you say they don't want you to tell them do this and do that, I learned a really big lesson from my daughter one time. She called me um, concerned about something. And instead of listening, I tried to solve. You could do this. You could do that. And she stopped me and she said, Mom, I don't want your advice. I don't want your ideas. I just want you to listen. And that was one of the best lessons she ever taught me. And I think that's true of most adult children when they call to talk to you about whatever might be affecting them at that. I think that's I think that's true of all human beings. Yeah, I think that's true of all human beings, too. I think that most of us just want to have the space to talk about what's troubling us. But it's harder to apply that when it's our own kids. And we've spent our lives trying to make sure they're on the right path and they're doing the right thing and eating the right foods and all of that. It's hard to relinquish control and let them make their own mistakes. I think that brings us to the next thing I want to talk about. How do you not blame yourself when things go wrong? You know, you've watered, you've tried to be the gardener, you've tried not to offer advice, you've tried to be there, you've opened the door and no one's listening and then disaster strikes. And as a parent, we tend to really harbor guilt. Oh, that's such a good question, Denise. Well, I think it's going to happen no matter what. A couple of things I've seen be helpful for folks. One is that there are um, groups for survivors of suicide um, that can be very helpful, not only for parents, but for siblings and friends. And the other is, you know, when we think about, I'm going to go off the track a little bit to lay the ground for this analogy. When we think about chemotherapy, somebody goes into the oncologist, the oncologist says, I have this treatment, but in order to receive this treatment, you have to have 10,000 white cells and you have to have a hematocrit of such and such. And they do the test, your 
numbers aren't that. So the oncologist has to say, you know, you're not eligible for this chemotherapy. That means your prognosis is less good. We don't have that kind of way to predict prognosis in mental health disorders. Although it's really difficult to accept this, some mental health disorders are fatal. Again, that won't take away the guilt, but it's another perspective. You know, when you think about, we talk about, oh, he died of suicide. He died of depression and his depression didn't get better for whatever reason or another. And that resulted in suicide. Again, it's an awful outcome. Uh, Guilt is going to be there, uh, but it's another context in which it might be helpful to think. That really puts it in a, a, you know, like a, it, it gives us a different way to reframe this by saying, I'm there to support you as if you would be if your child had some kind of a cancer or diabetes or whatever, that I'm here for you. And we, we don't tell parents to, well, you know, let him go out on his own if he gets a diagnosis of colon cancer. But if, if your child has, you know, severe depression and is having trouble getting a job, people will stigmatize you and your child all at the same time. Well, that's probably the biggest issue that you just hit on. And Beth was very helpful in her uh, comments there. The stigmatism still exists of mental illness. If your child has cancer or colon disease or whatever it is, you have a rally of support around you. When your child has severe depression, there's almost a little bit of shutting the door to you. You know, it's, it's much harder. There's a stigma to it still in our society even if we try not to have it there. So um, I can tell this story without giving up any details because it's pretty general and it happened quite a long time ago. I was an attending psychiatrist on an inpatient unit and we were treating a woman who had very severe depression and none of her family came to visit. You know, they didn't think she should be in the hospital. Uh, They didn't think treatment would work. They didn't really believe in depression. But as part of our uh, medical workup, we discovered that she had colon cancer. Oh, my gosh. And as soon as she was diagnosed with colon cancer, all her family came in to visit. Now she was really sick. Uh, It just was a striking, you know, objective illustration of that issue. And also, it it does get tough in terms of if your uh, child has depression, can't work, is staying with you, um, it's still reasonable to have some expectations like, are you in a treatment relationship? Are you working on things to get help? You know, you're not necessarily saying, oh, you can live here to get forever and be dependent on me, but I'm in your corner. I'm here to help. Well, that's using that analogy again of cancer, for example. You're right. You wouldn't bring your child into your home if they have cancer and let them go untreated for it. And I think that by understanding mental health issues and substance use issues in the same way can be really helpful in figuring out what's too much and what's not enough. So making sure that they are getting treatment as you are supporting them is as important as it is 
for any other kind of medical issue. So let me ask you, as a society as a whole, let's let's put our adult children to the side. What can our personal movements in life do to help moving the needle towards releasing the stigma that's so much on mental health? Can individuals make a difference, I guess I'm asking? Again, I think in terms of individual action, setting an example, um, being able and willing to share our own experience, just like with any social movement speaking up when discriminatory things are said. And there are a number of organizations that are working very hard to um, fight against stigma. And, you know, being part of those organizations is also something that can be very helpful. What, what organizations, are there any off the top of your head that are something that we could let our listeners know if they wanted to join this kind of effort? For um, people whose families have been affected by uh, psychiatric disorders, the National Alliance for, I think it's mental illness, it's NAMI, is really good at giving support to family members and working against stigma. Okay. Um, if you're not coming at it from a family member's perspective, but from a concerned citizen's perspective, Mental Health America, and in our state, it's Mental Health Colorado, is also a great organization in terms of having anti-stigma campaigns. And, you know, this is one thing that you'll see public service announcements about now, too. There yeah, are many yeah. individual organizations for individual disorders, um, including things like attention deficit hyperactivity disorder or autism, where just increasing public awareness and decreasing stigma are big efforts. That's very true. But I also think, you know, the overall, you know, we have this whole insurance umbrella around us. And when you deal with your insurance company, mental illness is never an equal to other illnesses, I would say. It's always secondary or it's uh, listed separately when it should be just a part of some of the other illnesses that we treat. Absolutely. And more mental health professionals do not take insurance than other specialties. That's exactly now, right. That's bad too. Is discriminatory and it's difficult. You know, one of the most intriguing movements is um, called integrated care, where there's consultation by behavioral health professionals to primary care practices. That's been really helpful in pediatrics and in adult medicine in terms of early screening, um, decreasing stigma, getting access to care right in your primary care practice. And there's some very exciting things about that. And there's been some very exciting things about telehealth uh, that have been accelerated by uh, the pandemic. Yeah, I wonder what you think about that. I, I wonder, is that, are they getting good care via telehealth? I always see that. This sounds terrible, but I'm going to be really honest. Oh, why would I go to telehealth? It seems like just, is it call center for psychology? Or do you think it's something to use? Well, right now it's being used in a lot of different ways. I mean, there's been a huge increase in for-profit uh, telehealth organizations. And it it's hard to figure out whether they're working for profit or they're working for good care. But right. I think I think some of them are dedicated to good care. And I think, you know, if the choice is no treatment or treatment by telehealth, you know, it's a no brainer. 
and there's some that's true or a six a six month waiting list that's true too um you know at the at the hospital where where i work it's actually decreased because we had no choice but to do telehealth and we're still not back into full-time in-person visits and telehealth decreased the no-show rate significantly our hours for every aspect of psychological and psychiatric care are you know the most they've been ever and that surprised us all but i think that part of it is when you're depressed you don't always want to get in the car and and go to the appointment and search for parking and you know do all of those things it's a lot easier to just get on zoom and talk to a psychiatrist or psychologist or mental health professional so i think there's a lot of good that can that can come from this i think we still have a lot to learn and you're right, Ellen, when I was saying, you know, the call center, I think I was referring to some of these more for profit things that are advertising all the time. And I do really think it's profit driven. But I think when you're dealing yeah. with, you know, a psychologist or psychiatrist at a hospital or a doctor's telehealth is fabulous. And I do think it's a lot easier than getting in the car and that sort of thing. But I worry about, I mean, I'm inundated on social media and television and everywhere with, are you having a problem? Call this number. And I think we have to be a little bit careful. On the other hand, what Beth said is really important. If it's nothing or that, it's a no brainer. Yeah. And there's been some really unique things done in rural areas with telehealth. And again, I don't want to say that the for-profit industry is always bad, but one does have to be a little more suspicious, I think. Right. Now, I want to just ask about the laws. You had mentioned, you know, the final step of forcing them to go into treatment or whatever. People have told me once your child turns 18, you have very little strength in making them do anything or getting them treatment or that sort of thing. Is this true? Or are there other things parents should be aware of once their child turns turns 18 that they can be more involved in? So this is all a matter of state law. Okay. In Colorado, a minor can consent for treatment at the age of 15. And a minor can object to treatment at any age. If a child is under 15, they're appointed a guardian ad litem. If they're over 15, they participate in the legal proceedings to see whether hospitalization is necessary. And even if a parent enrolls a child in a hospital setting, if the child, there has to be a determination that hospitalization is necessary for treatment. So there's not the ability, at least in Colorado, to commit even your child, the way people fantasize there is. Interesting. I didn't realize that. The other thing is, you know, there's a lot of fear about people being hospitalized involuntarily. But again, this varies from state to state. But certainly in Colorado, the number of inpatient beds is so slim that it's involuntary hospitalizations is much, much less than it used to be. So you need to put that in context. Uh, The other thing is that, you know, involuntary treatment should really be the very, very last resort. And especially when you're thinking about substance use disorder treatment, there's a whole continuum and trying less drastic things than residential treatment first is, is really important. And, you know, residential treatment should really be, uh, reserved for situations where it's not safe to do it in any other setting. 
That makes perfect sense. Yeah. But that's often not what parents are told. Again, you know, it's been a time of great expansion with a lot of these private residential settings. And they'll advertise their wilderness experience much more than they'll advertise who their medical director is. Isn't that something? And I guess, you know, I've heard stories and it was substance abuse and drugs and alcohol. And he ended up in emergency because he was being violent and he convinced them he was fine. And the next day they just let him go without letting the parents know. But I guess once you're that age, you can, if you can convince the doctor you're fine, you're okay to leave. And again, part of that is the degree of expertise that emergency room has, Mm -hmm. you know, Like if you've been in a car accident, you really hope the ambulance brings you to a level one trauma center. Right. Um, If you have a psychiatric emergency, you really hope you go to a place that has access to um, clinicians because if there is an issue about safety, good care means that you talk to collaterals and it may not be the parents. It may be the girlfriend or it may be the uncle, but good care when somebody comes in and there's a question of safety means getting more than just the patient's point of view. That's a huge helpful piece of advice. I don't think anyone would think about that when they felt like they needed to get their child to a hospital. They'd go what was ever down the street and imagine that whoever that doctor is had the right tools to deal with it. But really, again, the stigma, just like you'd go to a hospital if you're having a heart attack that's known for treating heart attacks or known for you know that level of care. But again, there is this issue generally if you're going to the hospital for heart disease, if you have choices, it means that it's not an emer- it's not quite as emergent as it might be. The other thing to keep in mind is there's a lot of talk about confidentiality. There's a lot of talk about HIPAA, but a concerned person can always call and give information. It's true that the person in the ER can't mm-hmm. can't say, "Oh, I can't tell you whether your son is here." Well, that's okay. But if he's here, let me tell you about him. Oh my gosh. What a great piece of information. Yeah. 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 That is great. And that rides on everything, whether it's our parent, our child, whoever it is, if we want to give more information to the hospital to help treat them better. Right. I just have to put in just a plug, just to say that what you were talking about is so hard for people who don't live in major metropolitan areas, because everything you said about Denver and Colorado is exactly the same for Boston and Massachusetts, where we've got like the highest concentration of mental health professionals anywhere, seriously. And it's just so hard. I just want to acknowledge that just because sometimes you don't have a choice of which emergency room you can go to because it's the only one within 50 miles. Sure. And, and, um, I actually have a job consulting to a rural mental health center and I have talked to a couple of uh, docs in rural hospitals, and one of the one of them said, "You need to understand. A lot of times, I am the only doctor in the entire hospital." Wow! Yeah. But um, it's just good to know, Ellen. I agree with you. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, this was really okay. wonderful, Beth. I think we probably should wrap up, though. There's so much more we could talk about. What are the two or three key points you'd like our listeners to take away? Keeping communication open with your adult children who may be suffering from uh, mental health 
symptoms or a mental health disorder or problems with substance abuse is really important. And you don't have to agree with them, but just to let them know you're there and you care about them, you're happy to be of help to the extent they would like it to be. And the second is to recognize that especially for disorders that happen to have their onset uh, before the age of 25, you're probably looking at long-time disorders. And that does not mean that there's no treatment. It does not mean that treatment is unsuccessful. In fact, the uh, outcomes for treatment of major depression are about the same as the outcomes for treatment of diabetes. But to not think that it's going to go away, or if your son or daughter is better now that you don't have to think about this ever again, or that to have a relapse of a substance is, you know, a failure. These are chronic disorders. And lastly, we didn't really get to talk about this, but if you have a family member who is either prescribed opioids or you suspect is dependent on opioids, uh, not only prescription, but heroin or other street drugs, get a prescription for naloxone and have it in your home. Uh, It can really be a lifesaver. Beth, I can't thank you enough for giving us this time today. I learned so much and I thought I was pretty knowledgeable on mental health. So I greatly appreciated you being here. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure. Yeah, such great practical um, places for people to go and get more information too. So thank you so much. And we'll make sure to put all of that in our episode notes and when we share, uh, when the podcast drops. So thanks again. Well, thank you. Thank you so much, Beth. Listeners, I hope you enjoyed that episode as much as we did. Beth offered so many books, references, and organizations that I'll definitely have listed with links in the episode notes. Thank you also to the young woman who suggested this topic. I'm anxious to hear if we covered the items that you were most interested in and get your feedback. And thanks again to our listeners. Let's make a real effort to share this episode far and wide. Mental health is a topic we all can learn more and more about. And just listening to this episode can help save a life, help a family, or a sufferer. So please visit our website at biteyourtonguepodcast.com and continue to listen to any or all of our episodes. Share them with friends, and let's keep this conversation going. Follow us on social media, and please let us know what you're thinking about and what you'd like to talk about. And hey, guess what? We got our first sponsor this month, and we'll be talking about that in the next episode. We've got so much coming up as we close in on the end of our first season. We have episodes in the works on getting through the holidays, when our adult kids disappoint us, and more on trusted estates, but this time for your adult kids. Yep, they need wills too. So stay tuned and remember, sometimes you just have to bite your tongue.